Hello, this is Melissa Lau, Associate Pastor of Congregational Care and Missions at Wesley Memorial United Methodist Church. Thank you for subscribing to our podcast. Our sermon series for the month of October is based on the book of Matthew. Please jump in and learn along with us as we go on this exciting journey. Thanks again for listening. God bless. All right. Good morning, everybody. We are so grateful for you to be here with us as we worship. Uh, as you saw in the video, that these are indeed uncertain times. And uh, more than ever, we need to be turning to the truths of God's word, particularly to the words of Jesus, to see what he has to say. Um, and so for the months of October and November, we're going to be doing a sermon series on the gospel of Matthew. And we're going to be reading Jesus' words and exploring what he said. Uh, about a whole host of topics. So uh, this is more than ever a time to build our lives on the foundation of what he says, his teaching, his example, his ministry, not on what we wish he said or we want him to say, but the truths as presented in, on, in and on the pages of the Bible. And in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus gives three parables, and they're really about the nation of Israel. And the context of these parables is that the religious leaders of that day are asking Jesus, uh, on what authority are you doing these things? On what authority are you teaching and healing and doing all these things? And Jesus' answer to them is in parables. And a lot of people have asked me over the years, why does Jesus always teach in parables? And the answer is, is that the Lord is reluctant to give truth to those who have already rejected truth. But he will speak plainly to those to whom who eagerly desire truth. Parables are earthly stories that reveal heavenly truth. And to those who are actually really listening, you will glean the truth from it. And the more eagerly you seek God's truth, the more he will just plainly show it to you. And so there are parables here in, in Matthew 21, though, that on the surface may seem confusing. Thing, and if you take them out of context, the first one is that this called the parable of the fig tree. Jesus sees a fig tree that's not bearing fruit, and he goes up to it and curses it and says to a tree, may you never bear fruit again. And obviously the meaning of this, again, this is about Israel and Israel has been resisting God's truth through Jesus's ministry. And Jesus says, you're cut off. May you never bear fruit again. Clearly the meaning of that parable is that God expects fruit. The next one is the parable of the two sons, where it says that, that that, the, that a father has prepared a vineyard. He has two sons that go out to work in the vineyard. One of them says, I will not go and work in the vineyard. And Jesus asks, which one of these sons is doing the will of the owner or the father of that vineyard? And, the, and they respond to him, well, it's the one who did the work. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, religious leaders of, of Israel, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you because you're not being faithful to God, even though you think you are. So these Matthew 21, it presents itself almost like a mini series, these little episodes that he teaches. And the third one is one I'm going to spend a lot more time on today, 
which is uh, the parable of the wicked tenants or the parable of the vineyard. And the, the theme of all of Matthew 21 seems to be about faithfulness and therefore fruitfulness. This is Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves more than the first and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw their son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Now when the owners of the vineyard when the owner of the vineyard comes what will he do to those tenants They said to him well he'll probably put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time Jesus said to them have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone this was the Lord's doing and it is amazing in our eyes Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produce the fruits of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. Duh, they finally got the message. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. There's a lot to unpack here. Clearly, God is the owner of the vineyard, and the tenants of the vineyard are the people, are Israel, particularly the teachers of religious law in Israel. Now, everyone who heard this parable would know that he's referring to Israel as the vineyard. Why? Why would they know that? In fact, Inside the temple, which is where this debate was happening, inside the temple that's not there anymore, th there would be a 150-foot-long replication of a grapevine hanging on the wall of the temple that used to be there, 150 feet long. The vine spoke of the national identity of Israel. It was a picture of joy. To those listening, they would know Psalm 80 eight through nine, which says, you brought a vine out of Egypt, out of the Exodus, the, the nation of Israel seen as the vine. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. That this idea of a vineyard, of a vine, the picture of Israel, they would know that. They would see that. They would know exactly what Jesus was talking about. Many years ago, um, my wife and I took a trip to California. We went to a lot of places, but one was we went to wine country for a day. And we saw all these, these uh, vineyards and, and wineries you can go to. And, and it was an incredible uh, trip, which unfortunately, they've had a lot of horrible, horrible wildfires out there lately. But we learned that 
through a relatively small amount of, of a seed money, you can start a vineyard. And if you do it well enough, it can be a pretty good way to produce wealth. Even in here in North Carolina, they've passed many tax credits. You've seen a lot of wineries pop up across the Yadkin Valley. And it's the same way in Jesus' day that it can be a relatively inexpensive way to make money. But grapes take time, what we learned. It can take years, maybe decades, for these vines to grow and to mature into the point where they produce the grapes in a way that makes good wine to grow to maturity. Any vineyard owner, they want healthy plants. And so in Jesus' day, it was the same. Even harder, actually, they'd have to build hedges and walls around vineyards to keep out intruders, um, and particularly in the Middle East and in the in Israel area, to protect from wild animals. Wild boars would come in and destroy your crops. So they had to build around it to protect it. They would dig down into the earth until they hit limestone. And then out of that limestone, they would carve vats that they would put the grapes into, stomp it with their feet. You've probably seen that before. And then they have a lower vat that that wine would dribble down into and so that they could let it um, create cisterns out of it so that it would eventually turn into wine. They would build towers, sometimes 20 and 30 feet tall. These towers were for the purpose of storage, but also for protection. The owner of the, of the vineyard would make every provision for success, as any owner would do. You'd want to create the conditions to create the grapes that you would want. Now, if you didn't know this, in Isaiah chapter 5, which Jesus and the Jewish people listening to this parable would know Isaiah 5, Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, you see God saying the house of Israel is a vineyard. Literally, that's how God sees it. And that God has an expectation of fruit. Isaiah 5, 4, God literally says, what more could I have done for you, Israel? For I have created this vineyard. I've created every possible condition for you to be fruitful. And then in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the people of Judah are his pleasant planting. God expected justice, but he saw bloodshed. He expected righteousness, but he heard a cry. God is the owner of the vineyard. The tenants of the vineyard, those who should be keeping it up, are Israel. But who are these servants that the owner sends into the vineyard to check on his produce? These servants are the prophets. They're the prophets that have come throughout the centuries. And who was the last prophet besides Jesus? The one before Jesus was John the Baptist. And would come before the son's arrival. And they rejected John as well, just as they rejected every other prophet that came before Jesus. The, the, the prophets were ignored. God's law was ignored. His law was broken. And therefore, there was rebellion. But what does God do? He acts in perfect patience with an incredible amount of patience as God sends his ambassadors, if you will, over and over again. Psalm 119 says, verse 126, it is time for the Lord to act for his law has been broken. 
God's patience does come to an end. And God's law was repeatedly broken, rejected, and controlled by mob rule. I read The Lord of the Flies in ninth grade. This doesn't end well. And every single time another prophet is murdered and rejected, and instead of good grapes, wild grapes have grown in its place. And one problem of this vineyard and this parable in Matthew 21 is there's an entitlement to the tenants. The tenants have a sense of entitlement. They assuming they assumed everything belongs to them. And they, so they're justified in their worldview, even more so to the point that they kill the servants as they come to speak for the owner. And they would eventually even kill Jesus. Now, for those, you know, if you've worked in a place long enough and you come across employees who have worked in a place for a long time, like 10, 20, 30 years, even in ministry, it happens in churches too, people can see either a place of business or a ministry, they, they can begin to see it as, one, this is a place I serve, or this is a place I own. It's one or the other. It's one or the other. Your mindset is one or the other. This is a place that serves me, or this is a place in which I serve. I read a news story this week about a 37-year-old man in Virginia that was still living with his parents, still living at home. And his parents were so desperate to get him out of the house, they called the police to get their son out of their own home. And so this 37-year-old son did what any son would do. He barricaded himself in his room and proclaimed that he had squatter's rights over his bedroom. Squatter's rights is, a, is an antiquated law that says if you basically finders keepers. If it's abandoned and you, if you live in it, then for a long enough time, it's yours. And so, but the his parents' attorney, okay, okay, for one, if your parents have to hire an attorney to get you out of the house, there's a lot of problems here. But the parents' attorney says if, if he used the energy he had put forth in discovering squatters' rights, if he put that toward finding an actual job, he'd be living on his own right now. Ed's mother, or the, the guy's mother, said, we've tried everything to get him out of the house, but he just won't leave. He can't hold a job for more than a week, and he hasn't tried to find one in month, months. This is the only way he'll learn. Hey, if you're, if, you're, if you're having a problem with your parents right now, it's not as bad as that, okay? So be encouraged. But the world can tend to reinforce within us that we're the owner, that we're entitled, that, that, that everything that God has made is here to serve us, that we're the owner. But you know what? We're not. We're not the owner. We are we are, um, we are entrusted with what God has given us. The tenants of this vineyard, they were entrusted as vine dressers. They were entrusted while the owner was away to care for which God had planted. But entitlement is dangerous stuff. Entitlement can become veiled arrogance in action. Entitlement is the opposite of servant leadership. And, and entitlement 
cannot just come back to bite pastors because it can. I've known pastors that see their church as their church. Everything belongs to them and it doesn't. It's God's. You're there to steward it and to shepherd it and to care for it. But we've all been entrusted with something. If you're a husband or a wife or a child, whatever we are, we all have something which we've been given to cultivate. And becoming entitled, though, can become an issue of your heart. It can be the difference of saying, thy will be done or my will be done. See, in this life, we own nothing. We own nothing. That old cliche, you, you, you don't ever see a U-Haul taken, to the, to, to, taken next to the grave. You know, we can't take anything with us. We're born with nothing, and we will leave this earth with nothing. We are entrusted to be stewards. And if we, don't, if we aren't careful, we can develop that sense of entitlement that Jesus is condemning here. And the workers thought the owner, well, he's delayed. He's, he's gone to a different country. We can do whatever we want. While a cat's away, the mice will play. And so they took advantage of their freedom. When I was a little kid one night, my, my parents went out on a date. And, and good for them. They had three kids, and they needed some time away. Now, so my, my brother, he's five years older than me, so he was going to watch us. And then my parents said, hey, while we're gone... We're going to give you, you know, parents will do this. We'll give you some chores, right? It'll help you, help you do some stuff while they're gone. They said, well, just mop the floor while you're, we're gone. And we said, okay, mom and dad, we'll do that. So what did we do? Oh, yeah, we mopped the floor with our bodies. We began to slide out across the floor, treating it like a slip and slide. I'll never forget my parents coming home from the date and opening the door and seeing a good half inch of water across the kitchen floor. And the look on their faces. But as you read this parable, not only did the servants disobey and have a sense of entitlement, but you can see how they progressively got worse. At first, they beat God's servants, stoned them, and eventually it leads to the point where they're murdering God's servants. Now, even today, some will say that Jesus is delayed in his coming. Where is, where is he? Why hasn't he come back? Well, for one, we know that no one knows the day or the hour except a father above who knows when that day will come. But we are one day closer today than we were yesterday. We know that he will return. He will return to judge the living and the dead, just as we affirm in the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds in the Christian church, that he will return. And we are closer now, perhaps, than ever before. He is not delayed in his promise as some assume slowness. No, to the Lord, one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day to him. And when he does ret return, it will come at a perfect time in history. And when he does return, if you're listening as a Christian today, will we be found as ready? Will we be found as having oil in our lampstand, if you will? Will we be found as being faithful and ready and true and carrying out his purposes in the world on that day when he does return? So not only is there a sense of entitlement to the, ten the tenants in this story, parable, the second point is that you see a great amount of grace from the owner. This is a real story of grace. For one, God gives the tenants to have a vineyard to begin with. He creates the conditions for growth and he gives it to his people. 
He trusts them to be about his business, to be fruitful. Another aspect of grace is that the owner of the vineyard, he doesn't give his servants one chance, but he gives them time and time again chances. Look at verses 34 and 35 of this parable where it says, when the harvest time has come, he'd sent his servants to collect the produce, but they seized them. They ki- killed them, beat them. God repeatedly suffers rejection at our hands throughout history. Think of all the messengers God has sent. Noah, Abraham, Joseph, Moses, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. All of them were either killed or rejected in one way or another. So in Matthew 23, when Jesus famously falls on his knees on the dusty dirt road leading up to the city of Jerusalem, and he weeps over this city, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but... You were not willing. This is God weeping over his people, showing an unbelievable amount of patience with his people. Because if the main theme of the Bible is God's love and grace to us, a love letter, if you will, to us, and it is, then the underlying theme of that message, though, is humanity's rejection of that love. And grace. God repeatedly sending messages to us, showing patience with us in our repeated rejection. I remember when I was a a camp counselor at Camp Carrollwood near Lenore, gosh, 20 years ago. This is not getting good. 20 years ago, and I met a guy who was in his early 50s. And he was this new born again of the spirit Christian and he loved Jesus and he was an incredible leader to his youth group and he was on fire for the Lord. And he had such, though he so deeply regretted that he had not come to know the Lord earlier in his life that he, he, he said, I threw it away with money and pursuing my career and I didn't spend time with my family. I treated God as an afterthought and he so regretted it. And he said, God had been sending me messages for years and I chose to ignore them. But thankfully at this later point in his life, he, he finally woke up and gave his heart to God. Now I know many people are listening now who are Christians so this might not apply to some, but somebody listening is maybe, some, maybe a non-believer. Maybe you're a seeker. Maybe you don't know what you believe. And you need to know this, that all people, whether they believe or not, we are receiving the grace of God every day. We receive his provision. We receive his help for us. And still so many today still reject what he gives to us. The breath in our lungs, the, lung, the, the, the food that we eat, our careers, our families, so much we have, and we can tend to take it for granted. We re- when we repeatedly reject the grace of God, it can be a sketchy thing. When you repeatedly say, no, I'll do it next week. I'll do it next year. I'll do it when I have kids. I don't have time for that. 
It can become, you can grow this sense of entitlement again. Our heart can become hardened to the things of the Spirit. You know, I was listening to a sermon one time by Charles Stanley. He's the pastor at First Baptist of Atlanta. And, and he said, for as many times that I prayed with people on their deathbed to give their lives to God, to receive the forgiveness of God, he said, for as many times as I've done that, I have almost equally the amount of times encountered people who said, no thanks, I'm not interested in that. They're about to die, and they reject the grace and the love of God. God still gives us free will, but even at death, some can still be prone to say, no, thank you. But you see, apart from God, we are powerless to overcome the corruption of our human nature. God has given us a preventing grace, sometimes called a prevenient grace, to all humankind. God has given all people that grace. What is it? It is, it is the grace of God that says that God knows that we cannot know him in our own natural, unregenerate state. And, and it's because of that prevenient or preventing grace that we can have a some sense of right and wrong and the reality of God's universal grace for us. It is God helping us know God. However, this preventing grace cannot save you. And not even close. That grace of God simply restores our will sufficiently so that you are able to even choose or reject God. In other words, humanity doesn't even know what it doesn't know about God. That's how far from the great the glory of God we are. So, God in his love for us has chosen to help us know God. This is how much God loves us. Like the tenants in the vineyard, God has provided every available means for growth, for life. And but still much of the world still rejects God's grace. We are a stubborn people. Martin Luther, the leader of the Reformation, he said, if I were God and the world treated me as I treated him, I would kick the thing to pieces. So what does God do in this parable of Matthew 21? Does he kick the vineyard to pieces? Does he send a meteor to hit it and explode it into a million pieces? Does he send a host of angels to wipe it out at the snap of his fingers? He could. Look at verse 37. Last of all, it says, he sent his son, saying, they'll respect my son. He sent his son into the vineyard, and people still rebelled. And this is the final word. Jesus is the final word. There will be no other servant sent after him. There will be no other prophet after Jesus. He is the Messiah. He is the final word. No other messenger. Muhammad and the Muslim faith said that Jesus was a prophet, but that, in fact, he, Muhammad, was the last word. Joseph Smith in the Mormon church said that Jesus was, was I think he said, the son of God, but that Joseph Smith was the final prophet. No. Jesus is the final word, the final prophet. 
Look at verse 38. The owners of the, the tenants of the vineyard, they knew the son was the heir to the owner and they still planned his death. Which of you that are business owners, what, what would you do if someone killed your employees, took advantage of your business, and then killed your own son? If you were in a similar situation, how would you react? What would you do? In this parable, though, look at the love of the owner, the incredible love. It makes me think of Romans 5, 8, when the Apostle Paul writes, while we were still sinners, God sent Christ, his son, to die for us. Even in this very parable, Jesus gave some foreshadowing of his own upcoming death and resurrection. Romans 5, 6 says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's me and you. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, someone might actually dare to die. But again, God proves his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What would you do if that was you, if you were the owner of that vineyard? Would you send your most precious possession to an almost certain death? What happens when the owner of the vineyard is maligned in this grievous way? He turns this greatest tragedy into the greatest act of love the world has ever seen. In killing Jesus, humanity committed the greatest atrocity of all time, but through that, God did his greatest work of redemption. You see, those who trust the Son, you have life. But those who reject him, they will be cut off and thrown out from the vineyard by their own choosing, but not of God's desire. Verse 40, when the owner comes, well, God is angry and God is perfectly just. And he will replace those wicked servants with good ones. And then if you look at first verse 42, Jesus quotes something where he, it says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is amazing in our eyes. If you read this out of context, you think, where is he going here? Why is he talking about stones? I thought we we're talking about vines and grapes and being bad and the owner and everything. Well, to the Jewish audience, again, they're standing in the temple. It's Passover. Psalms 116 through Psalm 118, these were sung as, as songs. They're almost like the songs of the civil rights movement, the 1960s. Songs are sort of saying, we shall overcome. We will be delivered. We'll be, we will be redeemed. And it's the same songs here. Jesus is quoting Psalm 118. This was one of the five psalms of Hallel sung during Passover week. Jesus takes one of these extremely well-known psalms to his audience, and he says, this is about me. I am the one that everyone's been singing about every year at Passover. It's me. I am the stone that is about to be rejected by you, the builders. But you know what? Out of that rejection, I, I will become the cornerstone. 
I will become the perfect foundation for this new temple of our God. And even though you don't get that right now, there will be a new people that I will birth out of this new cornerstone that will be built on top of me, if you will. And look at verse 43. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people. The word there for people is ethnos. And it's not a, the word ethnos does not speak to a particular group of people, not a literal nation, but a kind of people, people from all over the world. And I will develop a new nation. Then in verse 44, Jesus gives these ominous words. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. It's like Jesus is saying either this stone will fall on you and crush you, or you will fall on it, and it will save you. Either you will fall on Jesus into his arms, or Jesus might fall on you. And all who oppose the Lord, and you see in verse 45, all who tries to oppose him, well, they always fail. Jesus is standing there, ready to receive those that will accept his truth, but not everybody does. And now more than ever, you know, last Saturday, there was this glorious day of prayer in Washington, D.C. I watched part of it online. And it was people from every, all these different races, people from across the country were coming to pray as the church of Jesus Christ, to pray over our nation. And more than ever, we're hoping to see a nationwide sweeping of repentance. We need to repent as a people. But the word today for those of us listening is that before our nation will repent, repentance begins with the church. Repentance begins with the church. Before our nation can be forgiven of its many, many sins, we must repent. Because without repentance, there is no forgiveness. There's no true forgiveness without deep repentance. Just like in the vineyard, God has created Everything necessary to produce fruit and life. He has created the conditions for growth. He has poured out his grace. And yet so many people today refuse to repent. Instead of repenting, we're blaming somebody else. Instead of looking in the mirror and repenting before God first. Before the nation will repent, though, the church must repent. Repentance begins with the church. If we want our country to be turned around, it begins with me and you. So I'm going to have a little moment now for us just to be silent before the Lord. I think sometimes it's good to have silence before him, and that he speaks in those moments. And let us be a people that repent of our sin, that seek holiness in our lives, and know that when we continually do that, and we turn over the altars of our hearts before God, and it starts in the church, that we pray that it would tip over into our culture as more people turn to the living God for the forgiveness of their sins. Let's go before the Lord right now. Dear God, it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. You have created every condition for us, for us to live. 
You've given us all that we need. What we still lack is having a repentant heart. Maybe repenting of having a spirit of entitlement, of thinking we're the owner. Or maybe having a spirit of self-righteousness and that we look down on our neighbor and resisting your spirit's work in our lives. And we have caused so much pain around the people around us, perhaps. And I pray, Spirit of God, you search our hearts and lead us to something maybe we need to repent of, not to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's your mercy and your love that call us to it. Because as we as sinners come before your holiness, we have to repent. Because we're not holy. And as we come in light of your splendor, it's, our sin just becomes very much aware, even more aware, but before us but Lord you want all people to come out of the darkness and into your light and that yeah that light might expose some things that we didn't want exposed but you call us to repentance because it's out of repentance that there will be times of refreshing refreshing of your spirit God, repentance, you know, begins with the church. We have much to repent of. And God, we pray that out of that, God, that you will do it again. That you have brought great awakenings throughout the history of the world. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you would do it again. You would move across the face of this nation, the whole of our world, that you would draw men and women and children to yourself again, O oh God but it begins with me and you. We lay down our lives before you, O Lord. Do it again, God. Do a great work in our hearts again. Bring revival and awakening, God, and the power of your spirit within us. Bring revival within our souls, God. Come, Holy Spirit, have your way in our lives. Do what you will, God. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen.